This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this episode of Rear Vision, we'll look closely at a type of cybercrime that's becoming increasingly common and expensive ransomware attacks. State governments revealed a further 13,000 public servants had their data hacked during a cyber attack last year. The government's payroll provider, Frontier Software, was subject to a ransomware attack in November. Queensland's second largest university has been hit with a cyber attack. Printers at the Queensland University of Technology began spitting out a ransom note in bulk early this morning. After being hit by a cyber attack, Medibank Private has received messages from a group asking to negotiate a ransom for stolen data. The Optus data breach, along with the Medibank hack, saw the theft of the personal information of millions of Australians. These two ransomware attacks were among the biggest local news stories of last year. In this rear vision, we'll hear about the explosion in cybercrime, especially ransomware attacks, as well as what we can do to protect our personal details from criminals. But first, let's find out more about the Medibank data breach. Medibank was hit by a cyber attack. They managed to gain access to Medibank. We're not 100% sure how. Hi, I'm Dr. Jeff Foster. I'm an associate professor in cybersecurity studies at Macquarie University. It looks very much like it was a case of leaked credentials, credentials, logins, and passwords that an employees had lost and had been leaked online and sold. And this ransomware gang purchased and used to access Metabank. And in doing so, they managed to download not just customers' personal identifying information. So they did get those driver's licenses, Medicare IDs, passport numbers, and everything else, but also personal medical records. And that was the really big danger we got out of what happened with Metabank, because that's really personal information. And you can, you know, you can change a driver's license number now, thanks to, to the Optus hack, and you can you can change up your email address if you need to or change your phone number, but you can't change your personal medical records. And so it was a really serious attack that occurred there. And uh, of course, the Revil gang who had conducted this attempted to extort money from Metabank for doing so in order to keep the information secret. And Medibank didn't pay, and they wound up leaking all that information online. Did Medibank make the right choice there? Yeah, well, I think they made the right choice in this case of, of not to pay. And and that's because there's two types of these ransom attacks that occur. And Revil was attempting to do something that they were unsuccessful in, which is to get all of their systems and all their backups and encrypt them so that Medibank couldn't access them. And that kind of encryption is really powerful for ransomware because you can't get back to business without your data. And so people tend to bay, but in these cases where they get stopped early and also Revil gang was able to do was steal the information, but not actually stop Metabank from being able to access their own data, it becomes a bit more difficult to justify payments because what you're essentially at that point doing is saying, I'll pay you if you keep this secret. And it's a criminal organization. These are large criminal organizations. They'll certainly keep it secret. They have a reputation they need to uphold. If people don't believe what they say, then people won't pay ransoms. So they do have a reputation and they will keep it secret until they decide not to operate anymore. And then suddenly they don't need their reputation and they'll sell off the data. So it would go eventually anyways. All they would have been doing was paying that money to buy a bit of time. So generally not too wise to pay when all someone has done is stolen your data and a 
trying to keep it secret. What do we know about the gang behind the Medibank attack? It's Revil, R-E-V-I-L, and it's kind of an amalgamation of ransomware and evil is where they came up with their name. It's a, a Russian cyberware group. We know that it's Revil because they posted onto a website that was once owned by Revil, a dark web website. These aren't things you can go online and buy on GoDaddy. These are encryption addresses on the dark web. You need access to the actual keys on hardware equipment owned by Revil to post there. But we usually know who these organizations are because they, again, have to keep up a reputation. So at the start of these kinds of encryption ransomwares, when they first started several years back, companies would run into these problems where they'd get encrypted and they'd pay the money to get the encryption keys and then the encryption keys didn't work because it's actually really complex software. So they'd pay the money and then nothing would work and then the person that hacked them would just disappear and say, oops, my bad, I'm not giving the money back, obviously. And so these ransomware gangs need to build up a reputation to be able to build a reputation so that they can say, we are this gang, we've attacked these organizations, they paid and they got back online again. And they can point to it and say it and build up reputation. It makes people more likely to pay their ransoms. And it's all a dollar's money game with these people. So if they can do anything to make people more likely to pay, they'll do it. So they usually advertise who they are. Revil is a bit of a weird case because this is a, a well-known Russian organization. They've been around for years. And just before Russia invaded Ukraine, they actually went through and dismantled and arrested the Revil gang based on U.S. requests, supposedly. This was less than a month before the Ukrainian invasion. At that point, we don't know what occurred, whether they got back out of jail. They might have been released again and just went right back to work. This could have been a few ex-members of the Revil ransomware gang who just restarted it because they had access to the dark website. We're not really sure, but they're somehow associated or, or the original Revil. In the last six or seven years, these kinds of ransomware attacks have become more frequent, raising questions about the operations of the groups behind them. Is it just another form of organised crime? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a one that is of significant debate within the academic sphere. I'm Dr James Martin. I'm a senior lecturer in criminology and the criminology program director at Deakin University. There's a whole debate going on right now whether cybercrime is a form of organised crime or does it differ from organised crime. But once we start sort of zooming out of these debates a little bit and look at the facts on the ground, we can see that there's a relatively small number of individuals. So, you know, we're probably talking in the thousands that are associated with the majority of ransomware attacks that are being committed out there. So, you know, relatively small numbers in overall terms. Most of those actors would be, you know, probably around three quarters located in Russia or, or states very closely associated with Russia. The big change that we're seeing now, though, is how these groups organize and collaborate with one another. So it used to be the case that with ransomware in particular, we would have individual groups. So, you know, this might be a handful of people working together. And they would carry out all of the tasks associated with a ransomware attack themselves. So that would be you know, identifying a, a good target, breaking into that target systems, moving within the victim systems to disable backups and encrypt all the files, and then negotiating and receiving the ransomware from that victim. Now what we see is a really different landscape and what we call the ransomware ecosystem, where instead of a single group doing those things, we see groups 
individually specializing in particular stages of that attack. So there are groups out there that all they do is specialize into breaking into the systems. And once they've got access to those systems, then they'll sell that access to people who will deploy the ransomware. And then those people will work with another group who specializes in negotiating with victims. So there's this increasing diversification and specialization of labor within this ransomware ecosystem. And for anyone familiar with you know, how divisions of labor work within the legitimate economy, we see you know, huge increases in productivity. But of course, in this case, we're talking about criminal productivity here. So you know, we see more and more attacks taking place because these criminals are getting better at carrying out their tasks and working with one another in really efficient ways. Dr. Ravi Sen from Mays Business School, Texas A&M, says that companies and organisations have tried to stay one step ahead of the ransomware hackers. So what companies started doing was they started becoming better at backup data. So even if they are targeted by a ransomware attack, they will go to backup and get online again. Then the attackers changed their strategy. What they started doing was they would not only encrypt the data, they will also steal the data. So even if you are able to get your data back from your backups, you still have this threat hanging on you that the data would be sold on the dark web. Uh, it will be just put in the public domain and that has its own implications for the patients whose data is distributed in this way. So if you don't want to do that, then you have to pay the threat agent. So healthcare has been suffering a lot from this. Then financial sector was targeted by ransomware. Again, because of the nature of data that they hold, if the data is not available, many of the processes would come to halt or would be impacted. And recently, we have seen ransomware attacks on supply chain. Now with the war in uh, Europe and all sorts of other problems with COVID and all disrupting supply chains, this is not something that the supply chains in various industries needed, but it has happened. Most recent example was uh, where hackers targeted a colonial pipeline in the US and basically encrypted all the data. and just the news itself led to a rise in gas prices at the gas stations. So it is a very serious threat. That was the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack of May 2021, which shut down America's largest fuel pipeline. Advised by the FBI to pay the ransom, the company paid 75 Bitcoin, around $4.5 million. US authorities, though, succeeded in getting a lot of it back. Today we turned the tables on dark side. The old adage, follow the money, still applies. And that's exactly what we do. US Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says finding the money wasn't easy, but it means dark side, the Russian cyber gang allegedly responsible, has lost this battle. Ransomware attacks are always unacceptable. But when they target critical infrastructure, we will spare no effort in our response. What legal obligations do companies or organisations that have suffered a ransomware attack have? Must they report it to authorities? It depends. It depends on the size of, of the company. So there are now mandatory reporting requirements for companies that make certain revenue or have a certain turnover. I can't remember what that number is off the top of my head, but basically differentiating, you know, not we're not talking about small size, you know, milk bars or anything like that. And also companies that trade in particular kinds of data. So health data, for example, is you know, particularly sensitive and I believe is subject to different mandatory reporting laws as well. It's a good first step, but 
companies that aren't subject to these laws, or even the ones that are, they often have very little incentive to report cyber crimes because, you know, if your customers find out that you've been a little bit loose with your cybersecurity and haven't been taking care of their data the way that we, we would hope companies would, then that's something that can impact, you know, a company's brand, for example. And, you know, that's obviously not good for business. So there's a bit of a, a perverse incentive for, for companies where they can to either not admit to these attacks or to play down the scale of these breaches. So, you know, it doesn't affect their profits, the bottom line. So, yeah, reporting in this area is a problem. Ransomware, even, you know, the statistics we're seeing now reporting very serious increases are widely considered by experts to be be significant underestimates of the amount of ransomware that is actually floating around out there. Who decides whether a ransom should be paid? Is that covered by law? You know, that's a decision that every company needs to make for itself. You know, there have been reports and debates about whether we need to, to ban the paying of ransoms altogether, whether this would be a way to insulate Australian companies. But it's a pretty serious decision because particularly for small to medium-sized enterprises, a very high proportion of those who are hit by ransomware attacks and do not choose to pay a ransom will actually suffer so much damage to their, their online systems that they go out of business. So, you know, there's real people's lives are affected here, you know, real people's careers and, um, you know, their lives investors might, you know, be tied up in these small to medium-sized enterprises. So, yeah, we need to think very carefully about these issues. The options in, in some cases are pay the ransom or shut up shop. And those are the only choices. In some cases, that might be okay. The organization could be closed down and you might be willing to sacrifice the organization in those cases. But there's other problems. So we look at across the ditch in New Zealand with the Waikato DHP attacks that occurred a couple of years back. So that's their district health board. So that's all the hospitals in the Waikato region of New Zealand. And they got shut down with encryption attacks. Uh, and their only recourse was to uh, if either pay and get back to operations quickly and efficiently or not pay and shut down the hospital for an extended period of time. And they tried with the not pay option and had to shut down for several days and redirect people from hospitals as a result. Uh, but you can see where it can be quickly become, particularly when it comes to critical infrastructure, not paying can have some serious consequences. If all the hospitals in the Sydney region suddenly couldn't operate because of a a cyber attack, and they can't pay because of it's against the law, it becomes difficult. By difficult, I mean, unfortunately, people could die in those kinds of scenarios. So banning it as a blanket ban usually doesn't work. And what happens instead, especially with medium organizations, is they'll just pay it and not say anything, which moves those attacks down into being completely kept secret and in the dark and nobody can track it and makes it all the more dangerous. So it's usually not a wise idea to do so, at least as a blanket ban of all ransomware payments. There are other options, though, such as banning insurance payments for ransomware. So right now you can buy insurance. Some insurance companies still offer ransomware insurance, whereas if you get hacked and you're offered that they'll unencrypt your computer for a million dollars, that the insurance company will cover the million dollars. And not only are those those popular, but for a while there, they were so popular that, that these ransomware gangs would actually, when they stole all the records, they obviously stole all your insurance policies as well. And so they'd find the insurance policy and your ransom amount would be the exact amount that your policy covered. So they were actually looking and saying, well, how much is their insurance policy going to cover? It'll cover up to $2 million. So we'll ransom you for $2 million and you don't even have to pay anything. You just have the insurance pay. So banning that, having the insurance company pay, again, reduces the likelihood that somebody's going to pay, 
while still giving them some options to stay afloat if they need to. Whether you pay up or not, hackers will always make money because they can sell your data on the dark web. Yeah, the dark web is a really fascinating space. I've been working in the dark web for about over 10 years now, and often is actually much less dark than it sounds. It's basically an encrypted subset of the internet. It's pretty easy to access. All you need to do is download a special browser computer called a Tor browser. And once you're using this Tor browser, you can access websites on the dark web without your IP address being revealed. So that's the unique identifier that your computer has that allows authorities to track who you are and what kinds of sites you're visiting on the web. So once you're using Tor browser, your IP address becomes hidden. And so you can send, receive or host information. So host a website, for example, without the governments knowing who you are or where you're located. And there's a variety of criminal purposes that the dark web is being used for. The buying and selling of illicit drugs has, has been one of the biggest ones here. And I spent a lot of my career studying those online drug markets. But what we're seeing now as well is the rise of these sort of hacker forums or forums trading in things like stolen credit card information and increasingly victims' identities, victims of data breaches. So you can access sites that will be auctioning off that data, you know, usually in batches of thousands, to people who are interested in either direct exploitation, so cyber extortion of some kind, or more often the case for the purposes of identity theft. The thing with these marketplaces is they keep popping up and closing down. So the law enforcement will go after some of the markets when they become too big, then the markets close down. Then after a few months, something else will pop up. And generally, the people behind these markets remain the same. And this is where you find a lot of stolen data getting sold. And anyone can buy that if the data is on sale. Individuals can buy it. Companies can buy it. Other hackers can buy it. Nation states can buy it. In some cases, the victim of data theft whose data is actually up for sale, they might want to buy it to minimize the damage that exposure of the data will do to the organization. There was a case, I think, a few years back where Facebook actually bought a whole bunch of passwords belonging to Facebook subscribers, which was up for sale on the dark web. They wanted to buy it to just minimize the exposure that their users might be open to if the data falls into the wrong hand. Then I'm sure there are other channels where known hackers trade in stolen data on the sidelines without going through the online channels. But uh, generally, those are not as well known because uh, the information about them doesn't come out in the public domain. What's it like for people who become victims of ransomware attacks and other types of cybercrime? My name is Dr. Caitlin Weiss. I am an assistant professor of criminal justice at the University of Texas, El Paso, and I study responses to and perceptions of criminal victimization. People can be victimized in a number of ways. They can have money directly stolen from their financial accounts. Credit cards can be used fraudulently. People can take out loans, like the cyber criminal can take out a loan in someone's name. So there's a lot of direct financial harm that can occur from having someone's personal identifying information stolen. And then also, you know, there's some secondary types of victimization where perhaps, you know, someone's credit 
is destroyed because of these fraudulent charges or fraudulent loans being taken out and defaulted. And it's a huge mess for the victim financially. And then they can no longer take out, you know, a loan to get a vehicle or they can't get a mortgage to buy a house or they can't get out a credit card. And then I think it's also noteworthy that, you know, a lot of people think of like identity theft, like, oh, you know, it's a problem and, but your, your financial institution will handle it. But a lot of research has found that victims of identity theft and the resultant fraud actually suffer psychological harm, somatic symptoms, all kinds of responses that are similar to physical victimization. Is it a different experience from suffering a crime in the physical world? One of the most interesting things that I think has been explored in that area of research is the self-labeling process of victimization. So a lot of these cyber victims don't even see themselves as a victim of a crime, even though they're experiencing all of these negative consequences and, and psychological consequences they still don't identify as a crime victim. They're not reporting their experience to the police. They're not seeking help, which impedes their ability to, you know, process that experience and get, you know, maybe perhaps the psychological help or even financial help that they need because they're just not seeing that experience as a criminal event. And an interesting anecdote, I gave a talk a few months ago to a room full of criminologists, and I asked how many of them had ever had their identity stolen, their credit card used fraudulently, you know, all of the things. And nearly every person in the room raised their hand. And when I asked how many of them reported to the police, and again, this is a room of criminologists, right? People who study crime. No one in the room had reported their victimization experience to the police. And so this whole situation of, you know, non-reporting leads to statistics that don't accurately represent how big of a problem cyber victimization is, and therefore resources aren't allocated, programming isn't being developed because law enforcement isn't aware of how big of a problem it really is. I possibly noticed it more because I was on holiday, but there seemed to be more dodgy texts and emails than usual over the summer. From Amazon over something I was supposed to have ordered, or from my bank letting me know I'd been locked out of online banking and just click this link. I think what we're seeing now, we're living in the midst of an absolute explosion in cybercrime. When we look at you know the statistics for all the various cybercrimes out there, they've been going through the roof for the past few years. And for reasons I mentioned earlier, we have that increased online activity across all aspects of our lives. We've got more and more computer savvy people living in various parts of the world. So there's an abundance of potential offenders, abundance of potential victims, and there's a real lack of uh, what we call effective guardians, you know, people like police or cybersecurity agencies, or even people who are cyber aware themselves and can educate their partners or their family members about how to how to reduce their vulnerability online. So all of those things account for the explosion in cybercrime that we're seeing at the moment. In terms of the most common types of cybercrimes that we see out there, online frauds of various kinds make up the majority. So, you know, these are things like the scam text, you know, from saying from Amazon or there's one that's been doing around at the moment, it's the dear mum text. You know, you'll get a text 
saying, you know, hi, mum, this is me. I've dropped my phone. I'm using this phone now. Can you please get in touch? And then, you know, someone will write back saying, oh, you know, can you send me some money as well? I need to pay for the car or, you know, those kinds of things or, or things like romance scams as well, where you've got you know, people think they're dating someone living in a different part of the world. But in fact, that's a fictional person and, and the person's in the process of being scammed. So online scams are really big and really impactful. And, and you know, I think we're, we're all sort of fending off increasing amounts of those, you know, from emails, texts, you know, all over the place. In terms of the ones with the highest number of victims, we're seeing data breaches being really big here. I think it's around 40% of Australians have become victims of a data breach over the last 12 months alone. So, you know, that's down to those very big hacks that we saw against Optus, Medibank, and there, there were a bunch of other really large ones as well. So, you know, cumulative number of victims, data breaches. And then when we look in terms of most amount of financial damage that is being caused by cybercrime, that's where ransomware comes in. You know, ransomware has absolutely devastating effects on business. As I mentioned before, many of the, the companies that are hit by successful ransomware attacks will go out of business in the six months following that successful attack. There's huge amounts of victims on the ground, but then also huge amounts of financial damage being caused by ransomware in particular. What can people do to protect themselves against this kind of data breach? We don't have any direct control over how well an insurance company or a hospital might protect our personal details. Yeah, well, you know, stopping it from occurring in the first place isn't really something you can do very easily other than not putting any information online, but that's an impossibility these days. What you can do instead is be better prepared for when it does occur. And so there's a variety of methods an individual can take to do that. One is monitoring what has leaked about you in the past. Most people have never even thought to go online and check what information or breaches has my information been in in the past. And most people would be surprised at just how many times their email address and passwords and everything else have leaked online. So you can check that online. A Troy Hunt up in Queensland who works for IBM runs a fantastic website, world famous, have I been pwned, pwned.com. So have I been pwned.com. And you can stick your email address in there and it'll come back and tell you every breach that has occurred with that email address and what was leaked in it. So it'll tell you if your passwords have leaked and every, your personal information, credit card details, whatever else. So you can, you can put your, all your information, all your old email addresses, your current ones, all of it in there and just see what has leaked. It's completely free. Anyone can use it. Just go on the website and stick your email address in. So that's kind of a first step to find out what's occurred to you in the past. But more importantly is what you want to do is contain it when it occurs. And the best way to contain a breach when it occurs is to make sure that the information you're using isn't relevant to other sites. So the first thing someone does once they breach this uh, breach the data is that if they get a logins and passwords, is they essentially run a write a script that runs through all the logins and passwords and tries all of them on every other website out there. So it'll try it on Westpac, it'll try it on Gmail, it'll try it on your superannuation sites. It'll try those combinations everywhere through a script automatically. So it happens very quickly and there's not much you can do about it. And they're just looking for those weak links of people who reuse their passwords across sites. That's the most dangerous thing to do is to be reusing the same password across multiple sites, especially if it's in your banking, your email accounts, or your phone accounts, anything that can be linked to tying to you directly. So the best thing to do is to make sure you've got different, strong, unique passwords across all those sites. Use a password manager. These are software that you can run on your computer in your browser that automatically fill passwords for you, and you can put in randomized long passwords 
that are unique to every website. Because what you don't want to have happen is somebody say breaches MetaBank and gets a login and password for you and then goes on to your bank account or to your phone account or somewhere else and starts stealing the information from there as well, especially not through an automated script because it's so quick and easy for criminals to do that. So you want to make sure that it's a contained to just a breach to that site. That's your, probably the strongest weapon people can use is to use a password manager and have a different password on every account. Dr. Jeff Foster from Macquarie University. Thanks to him and my other guests, Dr. James Martin from Deakin University, Dr. Ravi Sen from Texas A&M, and Dr. Caitlin Muniz from the University of Texas, El Paso. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Anne-Marie de Betancourt for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.